It's great to be here this morning. I'm really sorry to hear that so many of you have been sick, but I'm glad that many of you have um, begun to feel better. Um, and you're in my prayers if you're not here because you are not feeling well still this morning. I was beginning to think that maybe God did not want my PowerPoint to run this morning, and I was a little bit nervous because I have some diagrams in here that I was like, okay, I'll figure out how to do this with words only. But uh, eventually worked. Sorry for any of the problems. Some of it I'll know had to do with my being here just on time. Uh, so my apologies for that. Um, so we're in the book of Micah. Y'all are going through the minor prophets. And one of the things that we're going to see as we're going through Micah is that there are many things in this book that are similar to all the rest. And one of the things that I think is just helpful in terms of placing this as a book of the Bible as a whole is that you might think of Micah in the same way you might think, if you think of this at all, I do, uh, as Galatians is to Romans. If you're in the New Testament and you read Romans and then you go read Galatians, you'll, you'll still notice like, Galatians is just a shorter book that sounds a lot like Romans. And when you read Micah, it's a shorter book that sounds a lot like Isaiah. I mean, there's some things that are verbatim quotes coming straight out of Isaiah. So if you like this, go read Isaiah, uh, all 66 chapters. I really encourage you to do this. Um, but Micah, what we're going to do as we get started, I don't normally lay out the game plan for the sermon, but I think it'll be helpful this time around, is we're going to be looking at the setting of Micah. We're going to look at the layout of Micah. Uh, we're going to look at three major themes in the book of Micah. And then we're going to talk about God's victory through defeat. And in this last point, what I would like to, to way to think about it is how Micah is sort of bringing up some themes that are central to the biblical story, central to what God does in this world, and sort of place the book of Micah in the grand narrative or the grand story of the Bible. So getting started with the setting here, we have Micah chapter 1, verse 1, which says, The word of the Lord which came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and which he saw regarding Samaria and Jerusalem. So in the first verse here, we have the who. We have who we're talking about here. It's Micah. He's from a place called Moresheth. And it says that he is in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So when you look at where he is and who, he's, who the kings are, you can see that he is a contemporary of Isaiah. He's prophesying around the same time as him. And when you go look at the, the Old Testament stories, like 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, you can see that Assyria is sort of the main real big bad guy at the time that he is prophesying. The other thing about Isaiah in terms of his prophecy is that he's prophesying regarding these places, Samaria and Jerusalem. And Samaria is the capital of what is known in the prophets as Israel. But when the prophets talk about Israel, they almost always mean the northern kingdom after the split of the northern and southern kingdom. And so he's addressing the capital of the northern kingdom. And then we have Jerusalem, which is the capital of what is referred to a lot as Judah, which would be the southern kingdom after the split of Israel. And Jerusalem also is very often referenced by Zion. And so one of the things that you see as you read this is that he's going to really be honing in on the rulers of these people. And you can see that from the get-go because he's really got his eye fixed on the capital cities of these places. And he's going to be saying some stuff to them. And... As far as um, placing Micah sort of in the timeline, if I can get a really rough timeline of Israel's history here before Christ, you have the, the split of Israel. 
And then you have Assyria taking over the northern division of Israel. And then Babylon takes over both eventually, and then that eventually there's more kingdoms and there's Christ. And we would place Micah right here where he's kind of just before Assyria taking over the north, but due to the fact that he is also around uh, when Hezekiah is king, we know that Assyria is sort of actively taking over the north during that time. And when Micah is prophesying, the things that he has to address are things that happen when Assyria is going to take over the north, when Babylon is going to end up taking over both, and then he's also even pointing to Christ quite a bit in, his, in this book of prophecy. And if you want to know more about you know, where the general timeline is for this sort of stuff, I would just point you to 2 Kings 15 and 16, and then also Isaiah chapters 36 through 39, if you want to go read some more about this. So that's kind of like where Micah is and what he's going to be addressing. So let's talk about the layout of Micah for just a couple of minutes here. How is this book like some of the, what are the things or what is the progression of the book when you start in chapter one? Um, and how would you maybe break it down? Um, many of you, most of you, all of you maybe know that the Bible, when it was written, did not have chapter and verse marks. That this is a later addition to help us stay organized, basically. Um, and so a lot of times, the way the chapters are breaking up, broken up are not actually great divisions for the actual book. But in the case of Micah, it's great divisions. They're, they're excellently placed. And you can kind of see the structure of the book by following the chapters. And when you open up to chapter 1, what you see is that there's just... Destruction prophesied after destruction, and it's all directed towards Samaria and Jerusalem, these capital cities. And now God is saying that because of their sin, because of their idolatry, because of their rebellion, destruction is coming. And that same theme continues on into chapter 2, where in chapter 2, he's going to talk about destruction, but he does it, excuse me, in, these, uh, in a repetition of, of two, two repetitions, okay, of this sort of sequence. And it's kind of cool. I, I nerd out some, so you'll see that a little bit as we go through this. But it's really kind of cool because there's a repetition of three things where he calls out their exploitation and their injustice. He talks about how God is going to bring catastrophe upon them. And then he talks about how they're actively dismissing the word of God and prophets. And he kind of cycles through this, these three things twice, and he's calling for, and he's talking about how God is going to destroy them because of these things. And then right after these two repetitions, you have the common thing in the prophets, which is a promising note regarding a remnant being saved. Even though because they are these evil people who are exploiting people and dismissing God's word and God's going to bring catastrophe upon them, he's still going to make sure that a remnant is preserved. And that's kind of basically chapters 1 and 2 in a nutshell. And chapter 3, what he goes on to do is to focus in on those leaders. And he's going to really hone in on them because of their, especially their prophets, their priests, and their rulers. And he's going to address them regarding the fact that they are uh, operating solely for money and they're practicing injustice, even though they're supposed to be the ones who are doing justice, especially as the rulers, they are not. They get contrasted with the spirits and the justice-filled Micah. He talks about how he's filled with justice. We're going to read that verse in a little bit. And then Jerusalem is ultimately going to be destroyed because of these rulers and their wickedness and their inability to do their job rightly and in the right way. They 
are all twisted up, and we'll see this more as we go. Chapter 4 and 5 talks about how God is establishing his kingdom through the week. We're going to really focus in on these chapters in the end. Chapter 6 talks about how Israel is in the wrong, not God. And in some sense, that's a summary for all the prophets. <laughs> but that's definitely all about what chapter 6 is, is, is saying. Chapter 6 is really trying to paint the picture that God has done everything right for these people. And all you've done is betray me. And that should make us uncomfortable. The last chapter, chapter 7, is about Micah. It's sort of a personal lament. You really hear his voice coming through here where he is talking and lamenting over the state of Israel at this time. But he also has in this this hope and he has this trust in God's promises in the end. So that's sort of like the book of Isaiah, like in a nutshell, as you're going through reading piece by piece. The sort of things you might expect. So that if tomorrow or later this afternoon you decide to pick it up, you can kind of expect to see these sorts of things in this order. But what about some, some themes? Okay, let's talk about three themes in my ear. Three things that really just sort of leapt off the pages to me that, because they're in every chapter, basically. No matter what chapter you're looking at, you're going to see these sorts of things come up. The first one is this theme of injustice. And injustice comes up in almost every single chapter, something that is related to injustice comes up. We're going to just mention a few here where it says in Micah chapter 2, verse 2, it talks about having taking people's property and exploiting people. And then it talks about how uh, these people in Israel, they would take the outer garment, garment off of people, specifically those returning from war. So what exactly does this mean? Well, it seems like there are people returning from war, and the outer garment, as I understand it, is one that they had that was one that would help protect them from the environment. Protect, it was the one that they could lay on. It was this cloak. It talks about uh, whenever a poor person or a widow gives a cloak as a pledge to you in the law of Moses, you have to make sure to give it back because it is their only like protection from the environment. They had this outer garment that they had on them, and it is saying that they were just taking it off of these people returning from war just stripping it right off of them. The only protection they had, these people returning from war, they were taking it right off of them. They were evicting women from their houses. They were degrading children. The rulers, they don't practice justice. They oppress people. The prophets are at peace with those who feed them, but they go to war against those who don't. It talks about how whenever someone puts food in your mouth, you declare peace. But if they don't put food in your mouth, you declare a holy war against them. That's what the prophets were doing. As long as you fed me, I'm on your team. But if you stop feeding me, you stop giving me stuff, we got problems. Micah chapter 3, verses 9 and 10 talks about how the rulers despise justice and twist everything and how they ultimately build Zion with bloodshed and unrighteousness. And we could go on and on and on with more and more. If we were going to go more and on, more on and on and on, I would have to shrink the font up like this and then add these. Because it goes on and on with all these different things that they are doing in practicing injustice from the rulers to the commoners. There's injustice everywhere in this place. And all of this injustice of Micah ends up getting contrasted with the people, I mean with God and others. But first, I want to read this one coming out of uh, Micah chapter 3 before we go there. Here in Micah chapter 3. Near the end, it said, this is the end of the chapter. 
Micah chapter 3, if you remember, is addressing the rulers specifically. It says, Now hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who despise justice and twist everything that is straight, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with malice. Her leaders pronounce judgment for a bribe, her priests teach for, pray, for pay, and her prophets divine for money. Yet they lean on the Lord, saying, is the Lord not in our midst? Catastrophe will not come upon us. Therefore, on account of you, Zion will be plowed like a field, Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the temple will become, a high, will become high places of a forest. This is strong language. Build Zion with bloodshed. I mean, it's kind of... An awful picture to consider that they're building up their places off of dead people. I mean, they are shedding blood to build up their wonderful, beautiful places to inhabit. And as they lean on their wealth, they go, Is the Lord not in our midst? Catastrophe will not come upon us. As they sit in the comforts of their own home, they say, Isn't it great? There's no way God is against us. But God says, because of you, Zion will be plowed like a field. Zion is a mountain. Zion is a mountain. Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins. Jerusalem is where the temple is. Jerusalem is where the mighty structures, the great walls are. It will become a heap of ruins. And the mountain of the temple will become high places of a forest. You can't grow trees where there's a building. You can't after God destroys this, these people for what they're doing. This place is full of injustice. And God is going to end up making them pay for this. Now, this theme of injustice of these rulers, it ends up getting contrasted with God and the way he operates in the world, but also with Micah and what he requires of his people, looking specifically at God and some of the things that said about him. It talks about how he practices justice, he cares for the weak, and he does right by people. One specific instance of this is in Micah chapter 7, verses 8 through 10, where God is, where Micah is describing the way that God is going to practice justice for him. Starting there in verse 8, it says, Do not rejoice over me, and of me of mine. Though I fall, I will rise. Though I live in darkness, the Lord is a light for me. I will endure the rage of the Lord, because I have sinned against him, until he pleads my case and executes justice for me. He will bring me out to the light, and I will look at his righteousness. Then my enemy will see. And shame will cover her who said to me, Where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look at her. At that time, she will be trampled down like mud of the streets. See, even though Micah is being taunted by these enemies, and even though he knows he's going to have to experience the rage of the Lord for his own sins, he knows that God is going to exercise justice for him, that God is going to bring him out of darkness and bring him into light. That his enemies, as they taunt him because of God practicing justice, eventually they will be trampled down like mud in the streets. And this goes completely in contrast to what we were just reading about the rulers and their injustice. Are they going to bring someone out of darkness and into light? No, they're stripping the cloaks off of people returning from war. You just left darkness. Here's some more, right? 
But God, he sees people in their struggles, in their pains, and he promises to alleviate, to practice justice on their behalf. Another contrast that we see is Micah. In Micah chapter 3, verse 8, again, going back to our layout of Micah, right? Micah chapter 3 is addressing specifically the rulers. And in Micah chapter 3, verse 8, Micah is um, specifically contrasting their injustice to how he is currently operating, where he says, on the other hand, I am filled with power. They practice injustice. They do all this awful stuff to people. But on the other hand, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and courage to make known to Jacob his rebellious act and to Israel his sin. That's what happens when he's filled with the Spirit, when he's filled with courage and filled with justice. He doesn't continue in sin. He doesn't go along with the sin of the rulers and of the people, but he stands against it and he proclaims their iniquity and their injustice and their sin to them again seeing a stark contrast between him and the other people and the last thing here is God's requirement of people this is coming back to a very well-known passage of the Bible in Micah chapter 6 verses 6 through 8 we'll read this here where it says with what shall I come? This is Micah speaking. With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take pleasure in thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give him my firstborn or for my wrongdoings, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Notice the progression here, just real quick. Shall I come with him with burnt offerings, yearly calves? Okay, some the, the, the typical sacrifices. Does the Lord take pleasure in thousands of rams? Okay, it's gone from your normal sacrifice if I'm bringing this stuff to you. But no, what if I came with thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give him my firstborn? My firstborn child, if I gave that to him, would that be enough? He has told you, mortal one, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? You can bring all the sacrifices into, to, in the world to God, but what he wants for you to do is to be a person who practices justice, to be the sort of person who loves kindness, and to be the sort of person who walks humbly with him. And this, again, stands in complete contrast to the sort of behavior that you're seeing in Israel and among their rulers at this time. And this is... Uh, these things that we see of their injustice, but then what God is doing and what Micah is doing and what God is calling for, this is not just some ancient message that has no relevance to us today. I mean, all scripture is given by the inspiration of God for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for, for instruction in righteousness. All of these things are relevant today to give us correction and a way to live in this life, including these things. All of these things are relevant you know, 3,000 years later to us, that still today we can rest in confidence knowing that God is a God who practices justice and that he always does right by people. 
Still today, we could try to be like Micah, who is filled with justice and filled with courage. And so he names the sin that is around him because that takes courage. And that is an act of justice to name when people are doing wrong things to each other. To stand idly by, that's weakness. That's, that's a, what's the word? What's the opposite of courage? <laughs> Cowardice. Thank you. That was the word I was looking for. That is cowardice, and it is unjust to stand by and to let people take advantage of other people over and over and over again. It takes courage. It takes courage. And in varying ways, right? Like some, There are some sins that it's really easy for me to call out, but there might be some others that it's a little harder, right? It takes courage. There are some people that I can call out with great ease, but there are others that it might be more difficult. It takes courage to call out sin and to name it, but that's being filled with justice. To name the sins of people and to not let people just get away with doing wrong to one another over and over again, no matter who they are, whether they're your family, whether they're your friends, whether they're your enemy, whether they're on your team in whatever team you consider yourself to be a part of. We have to name sin. That's part of practicing justice. And this last thing here, Micah chapter 6, what does God require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? This is, I mean, this is so central to the biblical message that it goes all the way back to Deuteronomy. Okay, Deuteronomy chapter 10. You can go read it where God is calling for his people. It says, this is what I require of you. It's very similar language. Love people. Be kind to them. Walk in my ways. And then what are his ways? He's a God who practices justice. Walk in his ways. It goes back to Deuteronomy. It goes forward to Christ in Matthew chapter 23, 23, where he's talking to the scribes and Pharisees. It says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you tithe mints, anise, and cumin, but you neglect the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. These you ought to have done and not left the others undone. This requirement is still present to this day for those who want to be God's people. We cannot neglect justice. We cannot neglect walking humbly with our God and loving kindness. It's just as critical today as it was for Micah as he was prophesying. Two more themes here. Uh, one is punishment coming. We won't spend as much time on this one because, well, you'll get a lot of this in the Minor Prophets. Just in Micah alone, I just want to throw some verses up there where you can see it because, again, it's in basically every chapter. Uh, and we read one of these already in Micah chapter 3, 9 through 12. But I want to read one more just so we, we get, the, get the flavor of it. In Micah chapter 2, verse 3, says, Therefore, this is what the Lord says. Behold, I am planning against this family a catastrophe, a catastrophe from which you cannot remove your necks, and you will not walk, walk haughtily, for it will be an evil time. I mean, these people are wicked to the core. And so God has this catastrophe planned for him, and that sort of message is on repeat and on repeat 
because of their wickedness. But much like all the other prophets, as you're going to see, when God has this theme of punishment of his coming, along with that is a constant reminder that God is faithful to save. And that's the third theme that is very, very present in Micah. With all of these sort of promises or prophecies about how destruction is coming over and over and over again, God is talking about how he's going to preserve a remnant and how people are going to be saved and how he is faithful to do this. Considering in Micah chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, these are the last two verses of Micah chapter 2. He has just spent all of chapter 1 and all of chapter 2 talking about how he's going to destroy these people because of their sin. And then he says, but I'm going to preserve a remnant. And then he continues on into chapter 3. And what does he do? The rulers are wicked. The rulers are evil. They practice injustice. And then what happens? First thing in Micah chapter 4, God is going to create this kingdom. And he's going to be the judge of that kingdom. And nations will flock to him. And they will beat their swords into plowshares. And they will no longer learn of war in his kingdom. He is faithful to save them, even though they have strayed from him. In Micah chapter 4, continuing on, it says, God is going to save the very people he afflicted because they strayed. I'm going to save these people, even though they keep going away from me. I'm promising you that I'm going to end up saving you. He is faithful to do this sort of thing. In Micah chapter 7, verses 18 through 20, this is the last two verses of the entire, last three verses of the entire book. I mean, the entire book is filled with punishment coming, but the book ends with this. Let's read it. Matthew chapter 7, Micah chapter 7, 18 through 20. Who is a God like you who pardons wrongdoing and passes over a rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He will again take pity on us. He will trample on our wrongdoings. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and favor to Abraham, which you swore to our forefathers from the days of old. After basically seven chapters of almost nothing but destruction coming, this is what it ends with. Who is a God like you who pardons wrongdoing? And it might seem strange. It might seem strange. But the truth of the matter is, is that this is a message about God that is as old as any message. You go back to Exodus chapter 34, 6 and 7, when God reveals himself and describes himself to Moses there. And this is exactly his description of himself, that he pardons, that he forgives thousands and thousands. That's who he is. He is the compassionate and merciful God. This is who God always has been and always will be. And he wants his people to know that, that he has never stopped being this. He has never stopped being compassionate and merciful and faithful to save them. It's them that's in the wrong. Going back to Micah chapter 6, how God is not the one in the wrong. It's these people who are the one in the wrong. He's always been faithful. He's always been committed. It's them who haven't. That's exactly what Micah chapter 6 is about. We're going to read the first five verses here because it really emphasizes this point because it, gets, like, it gives us examples from their history where it says, Hear now what the Lord is saying. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. So 
This is what God is saying to his people. Plead your case. I'm giving you a chance. Plead your case. What would you have to say to plead your own case before me? Listen, you mountains, to the indictments by the Lord and you endearing foundations of the earth because the Lord has a case against his people. And he will dispute, dispute with Israel. My people, what have I done to you? And how have I wearied you? Answer me. He's asking, tell me. Tell me where I went wrong in the relationship. Tell me where I did something against you, where I was not faithful, where I was not the one who was showing compassion, where I was not doing right by you. Show me where I did that, Israel. Show me. Indeed, I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. My people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, planned get, and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, so that you might know the righteous acts of the Lord. There is, no, there is nothing they can answer him. It is because of them that they were saved from slavery in Egypt. It is because of him that they had the leaders, Moses and Aaron and Miriam, to lead them out of that place. Remember what he did with Balak, king of Moab, and Balaam. What did Balaam do? Balak tried to get Balaam to come and curse God's people. But what did God do? He put a blessing in Balaam's mouth every time he tried to speak. He was always there protecting his people. He was always there faithfully guiding them. He was the one who got them out of the pit to begin with. And he protected them from Shittim to Gilgal. That is, from the, from the instance that happened with Balak and Balaam all the way to the Jordan River where they crossed and took over um, the Canaan land. Remember what he did during that time. How he preserved you. He fed you with manna. He gave you rain when you needed it. He gave you food when you needed it. Remember it so that you might know the righteous acts of the Lord. God was always there, always doing right by these people. It is them who have strayed. And that's, that message rings just as true today for us. These two things combined. One, that God has a punishment coming. But two, that God stands as a faithful God to preserve people. And if there's any, any idea that could ever come to our head that maybe God has abandoned us, we're, we're, we're the one abandoning him. It's not him abandoning us. If we ever think he's doing wrong by us, no, I promise you he's not. He's always doing right by you. He's always got your best interest in mind. If anyone strays in this relationship, it's you, not him. And we need to remember that so that we might know the righteous acts of the Lord. The last thing we're going to talk about is God's victory through the feet. In Micah chapter 4 and 5, Micah really hits on this a, a number of times here. And what he's, the thing about this, I, it's really cool to me, but it's also just a really, really um, awe-inspiring message that is in Micah that is sort of central to 
the way God seems to act over and over and over again throughout the Bible. And I want to demonstrate that briefly by putting it in, term, in terms of the entire biblical story where we can look, go back to Israel's past and we can see how even in Israel's past, God gained victory through defeats. And a good example of this is Joseph. And Joseph, many of you know probably what Genesis chapter 50 verse 20 says, where Joseph says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Where Joseph's brothers, they had premeditated murder, but then instead of murdering him, he ended up getting sold into slavery. And then when he's in, over in Egypt, he ends up getting thrown into prison. But then he rises up. Because he rises up in Egypt, he's eventually able to save his brothers and the entire family from starvation because of a famine. And when his brothers are basically at his mercy, he says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You meant to do evil by me in the way you struck me and hurt me and sent me to this place. But God meant it for good because it's the salvation of his people, Israel, and it's the fulfillment of his promises. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. It may have hurt me, but it ultimately ends up to the betterment of everyone else. And this instance of what happens in Joseph turns out to be part of an even bigger plan that looks exactly the same with the entire nation of Israel. If you go back to Genesis chapter 15 and you read there where God is making his promise to Abraham, he says, you're going you're to be roaming in this land that you're supposed to possess and you're not going to possess it. Your people are going to end up enslaved and then I'm going to bring them out with my mighty arm with outstretched judgments. And that's exactly what happens. Israel ends up going into Egypt, ends up being enslaved. And while they are enslaved and they are oppressed, God brings them out through his mighty acts. And people start throwing money at them as they're leaving. They're walking out. They go, they're, they're walking out of Egypt and the Egyptians are like, take all our stuff, just get out of here. You can have it. Previously, they were oppressed and downtrodden. But now all the Egyptians are saying, take our stuff, get out of here. And then when they get out and they get all the way over to the other side and they get to Jericho and you get Rahab the harlot, she, she, what does she say? She says, we all know what happened. We know how the Lord saved you from those people. And they're terrified of Israel and God. And so what happened how is this victory through defeat? Because God sent his people into a very difficult situation where they were oppressed and they were enslaved. And he brought them out through his power, not theirs, through his power, not theirs. And in the end, all the nations around knew the mighty power of God. And God kept his promises to Abraham. And that same sort of thing gets picked up in Micah's message in verse chapters 4 and 5, where in Micah chapter 4, verses 6 through 8, it talks about how God is going to take this limping and strayed from God people, and he's going to take that remnant, and he's going to give them the former dominion that they once had. And in Micah chapter 4, verse 9, through the beginning of chapter 5, we have the same sort of picture. We're going to read this one because I think it's so helpful for getting this idea of how God obtains victory by sending his people first through the feats and through low places. In Micah chapter 4, verse 9, it says, Now why do you cry out loudly? Is there no king among you? Or has your counselor perished? That agony has gripped you like a woman in childbirth? 
Writhe and scream, daughter of Zion, like a woman in childbirth. For now you will go out of the city, lie, live in the field, and go to Babylon. There you will be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemy. So again, we kind of see the same thing on repeat, right? So I'm going to send you into these people who are ultimately going to oppress you, but then I'm going to redeem you from the hand of your enemies. There you will be rescued. And um, remember this, this childbirth metaphor. It's going to become important in just a minute. Remember it. It's like a woman in childbirth. A woman in childbirth, I mean, this is before epidurals, okay? So if you, there's, there's, there's no gas to knock you out, you know, there's nothing like that. You just got to go through the pain of childbirth, right? And what happens in childbirth? They're in pain, but they know that on the other side of this, there's this beautiful and wonderful thing awaiting them, right? And so the, the pain becomes worth it because of what's on the other side. And we're going to see that in just a second. So they're going to go to Babylon. They're going to be overtaken by their enemies. And now many nations have been assembled against you who say, let her be defiled and let our eyes gloat over Zion. All the nations are like, We're, they're going to be gloating. They're like, we beat them. We got them. We crushed them. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. And they do not understand his plan. For he has gathered them like sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron and I will make your hooves bronze so that you may pulverize many people and dedicate to the Lord their unjust prophets and their wealth to the Lord of all the earth. He's saying all these nations said, look at him, we beat him, we got him. But little do they know that God's got other plans through their defeats. That even though they're going to be defeated, they're going to be cast out in the midst of these people, God's got something else in mind that's ultimately going to be their destruction and their downfall. Little do they know, he has gathered these other nations like sheaves to the threshing floor. And what happens to sheaves in the threshing floor? They get stomped and pulverized. God is sending these people in like a ticking time bomb or like a Trojan horse. And even though they are defeated for a while, they are, this is ultimately going to play into the enemies of God's defeat. They do not know the plans of the Lord. But for now, for now, God's people are writhing in pain like a woman in childbirth. Now muster yourselves in troops, daughters of troops. They have laid siege against us. With a rod they will strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But as for you, Bethlehem of Prethah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will come forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. His time is coming forth from long ago, from the days of eternity past. They are struck on the cheek. They have been besieged. And what happens? They are defeated people. And then in a, in a town that is too small to be a clan of Judah, God is going to raise up the one who will be their ruler. From a defeated people in a small town in that defeated people, God is going to raise up the one who is ultimately going to give them victory. Therefore, he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. They're going to be given up to these people until the time has come to give birth. Then the remainder of his kinsmen will return to the sons of Israel. And he will rise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. 
in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will remain. Because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. This one will be our peace. God is giving them up until the time has come for the people who are writhing in pain like a woman in labor to give birth. When the hope comes. When the joy on the other side of the pain has arrived. He is giving them up until then. They are going through defeats ultimately to obtain victory. And that same theme gets played out again and again and again. How God is bringing his people through defeats in weakness and distress ultimately for his victory. And we see sort of the greatest and most amazing manifestation of this or example of this in Jesus. How in Jesus through defeat, Jesus defeated sin because sin was condemned in his flesh on the cross. How through Jesus, by going, taking on flesh and then participating in death, being killed, he defeats Satan. And then also with death itself. Even though he went through death, God raised him up and now death has no more, is no longer his master. Jesus was defeated. But it was ultimately for God's victory. This same cycle, Han repeats, clearly seen in Jesus hanging on that cross. So that every, all these cosmic tyrants like the nations might say, look, we beat you. But they don't know the plans of God. They don't know. Satan may have looked at Jesus, the Messiah, on the cross and said, I beat you. But they don't know the plans of God because it is through what looks like defeat that God is going to bring about victory. And that includes the nations as well, which is what is in view in Micah. Because in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, in the context of talking about what Jesus accomplished through the crucifixion, it says, When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Through Jesus on the cross, through his cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. He made a public display of them. What does that mean? How does that work? Well, the way I think about it is that if you were to say, like, this is my best weapon. Okay, this is my strongest instrument. And then you pull it out, and then you use it, and it doesn't work. What happens? Well, you're all of a sudden very, very uh, exposed, right? My strongest weapon doesn't work. I told you it was my strongest. I told you it was my best, but it doesn't actually do what I said it would do. I'm humiliated. I'm on public display here because I told you this thing would do this amazing and powerful thing, but then it turned out to not. And so what does the Roman Empire do? They exercise force and they exercise control because they have this great and awful instrument called a cross that they can destroy people with and they can keep the people in fear because of this. But then Jesus shows how even they don't have the control that they think they have because God raises him from the dead through what looks like defeat, even to an empire, God declares victory. And the last example is in you. God can use your defeat for ultimate victory. He did it with Israel. He did it with his son. And he can do it with you. 
In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 7 through 10, it says, There was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to, give, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I delight in weaknesses, and in insults, and in distresses, and persecutions, and difficulties in the behalf of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul is discussing a weakness, a difficulty that he had that God was not taking away from him. And he pleaded three times, and the response he got was, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. The same way that God can use weakness in Israel, weakness, death in Christ, weakness in Paul to perfect power and to make us strong. He can do that to you too. And I don't know what that's going to look like in every single case. But I believe it. And we have a tendency to take what we're weak in and what we're not good at and we want to hide it. Don't see my flaws. Don't see the things I'm not good at. I'm just going to hide those in the closet. They're never going to make it out. And I'm not just talking about sin problems. I'm talking about other things too. You've got health issues. You've got financial issues. You've got family problems, whatever it is. We like to take those things, hide them in the closet, and never let them show. But those are weaknesses that God can use to perfect strength. And we cut ourselves short of a victory through God when we hide those things. Because He can use our weaknesses for ultimate victory. I'm convinced of that because God did it over and over and over again. And so I encourage you this morning, don't hide your weaknesses for your own pride and your own selfishness. View them as another opportunity to declare the strength and the power of God and to rest upon his grace. If you are here this morning, I encourage you with any of your sin problems that you may have, don't. Don't let those stay unexposed. Don't hide those weaknesses. Don't hide those flaws. Expose them because God can use your repentance and your exposure of those things for ultimate victory. If you would love to do that, we would love to help you. If you'll have a seat on the front pew as we stand and sing.